Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is an MCRIT We. Today, we're going to discuss the Clover's trial. I've already done like a We on it, but I wanted to get in touch with Nate Shapiro, the primary author of the study, because first of all, Nate's incredible. He's a master researcher, you know, been doing stuff on sepsis forever, and just a buddy of mine that I wanted to talk to about the trial. But I think this trial is really important and really powerful, and I it's a shame that I, I think it's going to get kind of not given the import it deserves, because ostensibly it was a negative trial, though I actually think it could be interpreted as a incredibly useful positive trial for establishing that two separate therapies both basically establish the same uh, patient-important outcomes. Um, but, you know, well, I shouldn't really preface with too much time me speaking when we could just dive right in with Nate. Nate is uh, at Beth Israel Deaconess. He's an emergency physician. He's a researcher. This trial was done with the Petals Group, which does a lot of high-quality research. And um, Nate and I just talk about the intricacies of the trial. If you haven't listened to the We On It Already, you should. There was a couple corrections Nate actually made from my interpretation of the trial, which was fantastic to get that out there on the record. And um I'm curious to hear what you think. So after listening, if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, then put them in the uh, comments section on this post. All right, without no further ado, let's jump right in. Nate Shapiro on Clovers. All right. So, Nate, tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Nate Shapiro. I'm an emergency physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Med School, and I'm an ED doc who does research in sepsis. And that's what brings you on the show today is the research you just did, the Clovers trial. Why did you do that? We, so it was interesting. With, there's the Petal Network, which is an NIH-sponsored network. And it's a, by definition, includes emergency medicine acute or acute care, which includes surgery and critical care physicians. And we were given the charge of doing important trials. And in thinking about what is important, we took a step back and said, fluids, first, vasopressors first, or septic shock, which way should we go? Lots of controversy, so we want sought to find an answer. All right. Now, in an ideal world, a researcher has complete equipoise. They are, ha- they are on neither side of the fence. They are just happy to see wherever the hypothesis testing goes. Did you have any presuppositions going into this? Personally, I entered it as someone who my personal practice was fluid liberal. I basically have been giving tons of fluids for two decades of emergency medicine resuscitation, though I acknowledge that I just didn't know if I was right. And so my personal clinical bias was towards liberal, but looking at the data, I think it's fair to say I personally had real equipoise. And I'd also like to acknowledge that this is an interesting trial because it was not my trial per se. I was a leader. There was a group of about 15 to 20 of us who designed the trial. So it was great. It was thoughtful, emergency physicians, critical care physicians, nurses, a couple of research nurses, statisticians who got put our heads together and came up with this whole initiative. So it, within the group, we had people on both sides of the fence. So the group itself had a lot of equipoise. I think that's fantastic to acknowledge that this is the work of a whole host of people. And I think the protocols you came up with were very good. Some people were like, oh, we wanted more separation of the groups. I'm like, I don't know how you could do any more than you guys did. It was pretty impressive, I thought, looking at the protocols. I'm like, yeah, this is a real test of a liberal mindset versus a restricted mindset. What do you have to say to that, Nate? Yeah, that was really the idea. And we, look, we all felt that being a good doctor at the bedside or being a good clinician at the bedside, that's important. 
You have to pay attention to your patients. So we did not, we got a lot of criticism saying, oh, rigid protocols won't work. But if you look at it, what we really tried to do was give non-rigid protocols where personalized care at the bedside would be important, which if you look at the liberal arm, literally any measure where you said you should give fluid, you could give fluid. Any clinical measure, any clinical assessment. So we tried to put some good clinical judgment in within the protocol. We tried to build that into the protocol. Now, there was one thing that stood out, Nate, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, whether it was added in or what the rationale for it was. But in the fluid-restricted group, elevated lactate got you to a place where fluids were encouraged. And so what was the thinking behind that? It was, if you're thinking within the restrictive, if you had, I believe it was actually lactate that was elevated and rising. And so we felt, so lactate tells us a lot of things, right? But at the end of the day, it's probably a biomarker. Are you more likely to die? If your lactate's higher for a compilation of reasons, it might be anaerobic, it might be anaerobic metabolism. It might be elevated epinephrine levels causing you to increase your lactates, might be bacterial. For whatever it is, it's a marker of badness. And if that marker of badness is getting worse, then maybe your resuscitation is not going right. So we wanted to allow the clinician to alter the resuscitation. And so the idea is restrictive. You're taking a restrictive approach. The lactate is high and rising. Maybe you're going in the wrong direction. So if you want, you can cross over. If you don't want, you don't have to. All right, fair. There was a lot of controversy, Nate, at the time before the trial started amongst the community. I'm not even sure how that arose. I don't know if you ever want to talk about this again in your life, because it was probably pretty traumatic. But if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear what actually ensued from the person who was there through it all. Oh, from the whole public citizen? Yeah. So that was, so it really wasn't before the trial. It was in the middle of the trial. There were some investigators who went to public citizens and public citizens went to OHRP and basically said, we don't think this is an ethical trial. We think that what's being done is outside the norm of resuscitation. And there was also some theoretical arguments about uh, whether or not there should be a wild type or unstructured group within the trial. At the end of the day, we had put together 20 people, really thought a lot about this protocol, considered all angles. We considered having a wild type arm and just decided that what we want, our question was, should you have a vasopressor-centric resuscitation or fluid-centric resuscitation, which is better? What should you reach for first? And so that's the trial we did. Essentially, what happened was we had to respond to it. And since we were on strong footing in a thoughtfully designed trial, we worked it out with OHRP. The trial continued and we finished it up. There was a second round that happened during COVID, but frankly, the whole world was too busy to get into it. And so at the end of the day, OHRP looked at our trial. They felt like it was a sound trial and it got us to where we we ended up. The trial was stopped early and it seemed like it was stopped early, not for any safety reasons, but because of futility on the primary endpoints, which was really disappointing because there were some subgroups that I think would have given an enormous amount of information. What actually took place and what do you think about it? So when you design any trial, you'll have, you, you have pre-specified looks at the data. And we had pre-specified that there would be a look one-third of the way through, two-thirds of the way, and then the third look is the final look. At two-thirds of the way through, they stopped it. So essentially what happens is we're blinded. There's a data safety monitoring board that's overseeing the trial. 
they look and say, should the trial continue? The two typical reasons, as you mentioned, that you would stop a trial, one is for harm. So if a group is being harmed, then of course you stop the trial for the benefit of the future patients. So there was no signal that one arm was superior to the other. The second one is futility, meaning, and in this case, the reason the trial was stopped was that they felt like we had the answer we were going to get and that additional patients would not inform the primary or secondary outcomes anymore. So that we could answer the question with the patients that we had. The groups were so overlapping for the primary outcome of mortality that they weren't going to separate any further. All of a sudden, one group wasn't going to go. And the secondary outcomes specifically, look, they were all the same. So there was no difference between the groups. So the primary outcome and secondary outcomes were the same. The subgroups, as I'm sure we'll get into, end-stage renal disease was interesting, right? There was, when you look at that subgroup, if you had end-stage renal disease, it looks like restrictive is better. It wasn't statistically significant in small numbers. Certainly interesting data. Yeah. So what do you have to say about that? That was exactly, you anticipated my next question. It's the one group that would be the one you'd say, if there is a difference, it's going to be in these patients. So it wasn't like some random subgroup that you're like, I don't know what to do with that. It was the exact patients where in my mind, and maybe I'm biased, but in my mind, it's if the patients can urinate, then maybe giving excess fluid, not as big a deal in the early stage before the inflammatory hits happen, their kidneys shut down. But if a patient already is in the state where they're not actually able to get rid of the fluid. It would make a lot of sense. Restrictive would help. And then we have this subgroup that the the mortality difference was quite striking and it didn't hit statistical significance, but the confidence intervals were like minus 40 to 1.5. It's so close to statistical significance that I really feel something may have happened. You can't obviously counterfactually say that, but it was like, come on. Uh, no, look, it's, you have to, so there's kind of, being a purist, and then what do you do with the data? So a purist, you know, the first thing to remember is New England Journal, there, it was interesting. They have a very thorough process. I was joking with the editor. I was like, oh, gee, your process is so good. I should do this more often. But they have a very thorough process, and they're for a good reason. And look, it, it's a not the primary outcome. It's a subgroup analysis. It's small numbers, so it's underpowered. That said, as a practicing clinician, how do you operationalize what in front of you. A priori, you say, if they have end-stage renal disease, I probably want to give less fluids. If now we have a finding that suggests is suggestive in that direction, it's not statistically significant. It's hard to argue that from your a priori hypothesis plus the data that we've see that we've seen that a liberal group is a good idea for these patients. It's hard to argue in favor of liberal of a liberal approach being good. So I think you operationalize it by saying, based on what I see, it's not statistical significance, seems like good clinical practice to take a bit of a restrictive approach. That's how I'd operationalize it. But purely reading the paper as a purist, it didn't hit statistical significance. It's interesting. Sure. There was another kind of weird subgroup that was in one of the supplements. And Mike Ward, who is a emergency medicine researcher on fluids, I don't know if he's corresponded with you. He's really, this is like his life's blood is delving through these issues. He's kind of amazing on this stuff. He found a subgroup in the supplement of patients with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation actually showing signal towards the liberal group. I don't know what to make of that. It doesn't have any physiologic So, So there's history to that. So that was not a pre-specified subgroup. So by definition, it shouldn't have even been in the supplement. We shouldn't have even looked at the data because this is where you start finding stuff by chance. 
However, if you look at the classic paper, that was a pre-specified subgroup in classic. So we took the pre, and it was significant. And so we took that pre-specified subgroup and we analyzed it in our paper. And very interestingly, it was significant. The only catch is in the exact opposite direction. So if you look at classic, that pre-specified subgroup does better with the restrictive. In ours, it did better with liberal. It's hard to know what to do with that, other than to say it's a pre-specified subgroup, and this is why we probably shouldn't look at under underpowered types of subgroups like this, because you might find stuff by chance. So the fact is, going in the exact opposite directions, I just don't know what to do with it. And I reached out to Anders Perner in Classic and said, hey, just heads up, this is coming your way. Double check to make sure your code's correct. We triple check to make sure our code is correct. Because the zero and one can head you in the wrong interpretation. But so at the end of the day, I don't know what to do with it. And because it's discordant with classic, that makes it even more suspicious. All right. Now you had written to me and you had because I had mentioned, can we interpret this as a non-inferiority trial? And you said that we did a two-sided p-value as our marker of statistical significance. And based on that, we could say it's not superior to liberal, the restrictive group, and it's not inferior to liberal within the realm of our confidence intervals. Is it fair to say that this trial is pretty good evidence that restrictive is not inferior to liberal? Restrictive is not, it's not, you, I think you have to just interpret it by the book. Because the real hard part is, remember, usual care for some people is restrictive. Usual care for others. So we, it's not like we can say it's a new treatment and we want to make sure that it's at least as good as the current treatment. So really, you just can't say one's better than the other. That's where we leave it. And within our limits of detection, we can't find a difference between the two. So here's a thing we've been banding about in our email conversations. And I am particularly irked by the 30 mLs per kg of the CMS measure. Now it's better now that you could write a little note and saying this patient not appropriate. And I think that's taken a lot of the sting out of it, but it still bothers me. And when I look at your trial, uh, I say this is evidence against that 30 mLs per kg. Now you look at it in the emails and I'm obviously gonna give you a chance to verbalize further, but you're like, most of the groups got near 30 mLs per kg in either group, so you can't say anything. I look at it differently. I look at this as if a doctor is choosing a restrictive strategy, that is valid. That is a absolutely evidence-supported thing, not just from Clovers, but also from the free arm of process where doctors were allowed to make their own decision. And I'm not looking to go from 30 to 20, though that I think would be better. I'm looking to say, stop telling doctors what to do based on a set of trials now out there, some of the biggest trials to date on this modality, saying, because if you're choosing not to give a lot of fluids and the patient's hypotensive, you're going to get vasopressors. You're essentially going to be in the restrictive group of clovers. Is there not enough evidence to say clinicians should be able to make their own judgment based on the patient in front of them? Listen, I, I am equally irked, and I've always liked your approach with this. And, 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 and I did forget to say at the beginning of the call, I meant to say long time, first time here. Because I have not been on the show, but I've been listening for a long time. So I would love nothing more. Look, the 30 Cs per kg, as we all know, is not evidence-based. There's zero evidence in support of it, which in some ways makes me say, why are they going to start listening to evidence to refute it? But that aside, I think what we can say is patients in both arms got an average of two liters. Um, and we did not work in cc's per kg for very pragmatic reasons. 
They got an average of two liters. So I think what we say is above and beyond two liters, a restrictive approach and a liberal approach will have the same outcome. I just don't know how to operationalize that two liters prior. We don't know how heavy the patients are. Let's say it's 70 kilograms, which doesn't really exist in America, but let's pretend it did. That's about at your two. I don't know. I just, I think we know that fluids aren't making a difference one way or the other. I don't think we can say there's superiority from one approach to the other. I'm not sure how to attack the 30 cc's per kg, but I'd love to. Yeah, if they're getting an average of two liters, which is right on the border, and a 70 kilo patient actually just a tiny bit under, it means a bunch of patients were getting less than that in order for you to get that. Absolutely. And I just don't think, given the standard CMS sets for itself, which is supposed to be high level of evidence for recommendations that actually affect hospitals' ratings or pay for performance, this doesn't meet it. There's, as you mentioned, there's not high quality evidence for this. And it steals the clinician's capability of doing what they were trained to do, which is take care totally of Totally agree. And there was patient, by the way, two things just to, to maybe address. One is if a patient got, let's say, 500 cc's and got enrolled in the trial, the clinician restrictive on clinicians were allowed to give up to two liters of fluids, but they didn't have to. And there was plenty of patients where they got 500 cc's. The clinician said, I think they're fine. And they just stopped and got no additional fluids. The other thing is, once in the liberal group, once they hit the five liter mark in total, then we define that as that's a liberal resuscitation has been realized, and we turn the care over to clinicians to do whatever they wanted to do. But the subsequent fluids that clinician gave as part of user care, that was still counted within the 24 hours of fluids. Even though they were technically, quote unquote, off protocol, we just added up the total amount of fluids given. So if that clinician gave four more liters of fluids, it would be nine liters in the first 24 hours that was kept in. I'm so happy you said both of those things because those were things that I did not glean on my initial podcast, and that's fantastic corrections, which means there are a bunch of patients in the restrictive group who got very small amount of fluid. And yeah. so I don't know. I don't know. I look at this as a very helpful trial, a very important trial. I'm so sad they stopped it early because I think some of these subgroups may have borne fruit. So I guess the last part we'll go to, Nate, is having just completed this, what is your current stance? Try to encapsulate it in a real bedside, helpful manner yeah. towards fluids. So, well, let me say that going into the trial, I, I was tended towards liberal. So if I had a patient, especially, depends where I was working too, that we have a unique practice because we work in some smaller hospitals as well. And so I'm not always in the quote unquote academic mega center. But a lot of times I would say, hang two, three liters of fluids and let it rip. And then I'll check back in on the patient and see how they're doing. I felt pretty good about it. Sometimes more fluids. But the other approach of people are saying, hey, just put a peripheral IV in after a little bit of initial fluid, hang some vasopressors, everything will be okay. So going into the trial, I didn't know what was better for the patients. During the trial, I had patients that were enrolled while I was working clinically. And so I saw each arm. And so I, I had patients where we're going, and I think we, I want to give a mention to the peripheral IV issue as well, but where we put some IV and hang a little bit of vasopressors, for the most part, the blood pressure would come up, normalize, and the patient would be fine. What I didn't know during the trial is which was better for the patient, because that's all that matters in the end. Now that we've seen the data, it turns out both choices are viable options. And so... I've spent the last 20 some years of my career arguing over fluids and vasopressors, and it turned out everybody was right. Like, this probably isn't where we're going to see our mortality benefit 
There might be some stuff at the edges if we start using hemodynamic guided resuscitation, maybe. But short of that, both approaches are fine. And let's just pick one, be a good doc at the bedside, and get on with it. I like it. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about the peripheral vasopressors, and then I have two more questions before we settle out. Yours was probably, I think, the largest data set of the safety of peripheral vasopressors, and I hope you folks will publish a second paper specifically highlighting that, because I think a lot of yeah, hospital coming. P&T committees would benefit from seeing it in a study directly focused on this issue. Yes, it's totally coming. What was interesting is, as I mentioned, we had this large committee, and ultimately it was 60 hospitals. We'd get together as the network. So we'd have 60 hospitals or something up to that number represented. And what was interesting was there was a lot of us who had been using peripheral vasopressors for a number of years and were quite comfortable with it. There was a lot of other hospitals represented where they just weren't, or because of strict hospital guidelines, et cetera, they weren't allowed to use peripheral vasopressors, but they said it's interesting. So we actually wrote it into the trial as an allowable procedure. So patients were consented to that peripheral vasopressors were a possible part of the armamentarium that would be used, which enabled hospitals that didn't have this as an allowable practice to, to use this approach. At the end of the day, there was 500 patients, actually exactly, who received vas peripheral vasopressors, of which there was three noted complications, that those were three extravasations, and all of them were clinically insignificant. They were just self-limited. So it's not proving it as important. It's not saying a complication can never happen, but I think it's good data in support of the practice. Absolutely. What we've seen in other papers in the literature is that there's probably a benefit from low-dose vasopressors like low-dose norepinephrine. Even in a patient, you're going to give a liberal fluid resuscitation. It changes unstressed to stress volume and it doesn't have much effect on the arterial side until you get to the higher doses. Now, obviously, you wanted to separate that in your study, but in your clinical practice now, what's your take on that, Nate? I think it's a really, you know, I don't think this proves that hypothesis or that theory one way or the other. It could be, you know, it just seems like both are working. One thing that was interesting in my clinical practice and also actually in observing the data at a more macro level is there was a lot of patients in the restrictive group where they would go on peripheral vasopressors, blood pressure would normalize. And this is, again, anecdotal observational. Six to eight hours later, the pressors would come on, would be just fine. So it was like they just, the pressors just would magically temporize. I don't know if the antibiotics were kicking in. I don't know if that other fluid's equilibrating, but there was just a period of short vasopressor use that got them over a hump, and then they would settle out and do okay. So I don't know that we take a ton from it other than I think it's something in the toolkit. It goes back to compulsive bedside care and being the good clinician at the bedside is still important. So that's good to know. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Somebody you just want to get off your chest? Uh, no, I think we get the highlights. Look, at the end of the day, going into this, we just didn't know. I had done debates with Paul Merrick over the years. He's accusing me of saltwater drowning, et cetera, et cetera. And to note that the data from the SALT trial did come out during um, the, the, towards the beginning of Clover. So we recommended lactated ringers or plasmolite as the fluid resuscitative agent of choice, but didn't mandate it. No, I think we got it. We had a very simple question. Do I reach for fluids or do I reach for vasopressors early on after that initial fluid bolus? Turns out either approach is good and 
It doesn't mean you can ignore these patients. It doesn't mean you can neglect them, but good clinical compulsive care at the bedside and go either route, you'll be okay. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.